0: together. John chapter 8 is our text this morning. I want you to turn there with me. John chapter 8, we're going to be looking at a familiar story, a familiar account in the life of Jesus. We live in a time when we are faced with the question, how how do we respond to the cultural acceptance and celebration of sin? Now, there's obviously the things that stand out immediately to us that are very much um, on the front burner and sort of in our face in our day, but there's also a, a vast number of things that over the years, sins that have become really socially acceptable, and not only socially acceptable, but they have become things that we are to, um, we're to, we're to join in with and to celebrate. It's a challenge for us. It's almost like uh, living in a minefield. I've compared it to a cultural minefield. I was reading sometime recently an article about um, some, some folks who were serving, men and women who were serving on a team in Angola. And in that country, there's still, from about 20 something years ago, they had a civil war. There was a lot of explosives, a lot of mines, a lot of traps that are still there. And they have over a thousand active landmines still, even though they are working round the clock almost to remove these. And the people that live there are constantly in fear of stepping on one of these. They, they might step on one or some of their livestock or even worth, their children might step on these and so they will bring in these people to, to find them and take them out. And I thought about that sort of thought as I was reading this passage, this John chapter eight, where there's times where we're walking through a minefield and it's not a physical minefield, but it's, it's an ideological minefield or a, a religious minefield where, where if we step one way or the other, We're bound to offend somebody. We're bound to mess up. Something's going to go wrong. Jesus is in that situation in this chapter. The the Pharisees and the scribes come, and usually you could understand that if they came to Jesus, they didn't come with an honest question. They came with a question that however Jesus answered, he was going to offend someone. He was going to step on a landmine somewhere. They come to Jesus and they have this woman, as as Jesus is teaching, and we'll sort of summarize the first verses, but they come and they bring this woman who was caught, the Bible says, in the very act of adultery. And they drag her in front of Jesus and they ask him a question down in verse 4. They said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Now, you you see the deceitfulness of the question they're asking from the very beginning. Number one, if they're so devout about Moses, why do they care what Jesus says about the situation? It seems like it's a clear-cut situation. Their desire is they know that if Jesus answers one way, if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't stone her, then he's gone against the law of Moses, and those who are strict in the law are going to be against him. They know that if he says, no, uh, you should stone the woman, that's the law, then the people that see him as the friend of sinners is, are going to be offended, and they're going to pull back. And Jesus is in a lose-lose situation. If he steps this way, he steps on a landmine, and if he steps this way, it's the same. It's interesting that in our day, we're faced with a similar situation. Now, I know it's hard to see the, the culture that we live in as a Pharisaical culture, but let me tell you that there are just as many religious, secular zealots as the Pharisees were religious orthodox zealots. And they are just as adamant about their belief system. They are just as adamant about what they hold to. And they will, be, they, will, they will push sin in our face to get a reaction. And no matter how you react, if I move this way, I'm wrong, and if I move this way, I'm wrong. And at times it feels like, how do we respond to this? How do I, how do I find this balance? How do I make it through this? Aren't you glad that in our Christian life, we follow the good shepherd? We are following him. So when I try to understand how do I respond to this situation? How do I respond to this person? How do I respond to this promotion? What's my reaction? I want to look to Jesus. And I want to see some things. Now, I can promise you this morning that if you're in a particular situation, you have someone in your family or you have a friend or someone that you work with, that you're challenged by these things I'm going to talk about this morning, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to address every single detail that I could possibly address, but I am going to show you some things from Jesus' response that I think are absolutely key for us, that no matter what that situation looks like, here's how we can follow, because Jesus is the perfect example. Jesus is the only role model that I can point you to that no matter what culture or what time he, we live in or he lived in, he is the perfect one to emulate. He is the perfect one to model. He is the perfect one to follow. As we look at this, we see this dilemma that we're faced with. No matter how we respond, it seems like we're going to lose. So how do we survive this minefield? I want you to see three things. First of all, I want you to see that we must choose to live by God's love. We must choose to live by God's love. What did Jesus write? It's interesting as we read down through this, notice what Jesus does. I want you to see this. Look in verse verse 6. They asked this question. This they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Jesus acts like he's not hearing them. Much like some Children do when their parents are speaking to them, or sometimes husbands do. Um, How many wives can attest to the fact that selective hearing is a very real thing? Okay, I see a number of hands. the husband's like, what? What did he say? Is he talking about me? Selective hearing. Jesus exercises some selective hearing. He acts like he doesn't hear them, and he just, he writes on the ground. Now, there's a lot of debate about what Jesus wrote. Some think, well, maybe he wrote... Uh, Maybe he reminded them, was writing Jeremiah 17, 13, where he said, "...those that depart from me shall be written in the earth." Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments, and that writing reminded them of the truth of the Ten Commandments and convicted them. The Bible tells us that the Ten Commandments were written with the very finger of God. There are some who surmise that perhaps Jesus started listing their sins in the dirt. Aren't you glad that we don't do that in church? What if we started just listing the sins up here on the screen? How would we feel? Boy, that'd put me under conviction. I think all of us would go out from the oldest to the youngest. We wouldn't wait on the oldest to youngest. There'd be a mass exodus to leave. We don't know what he wrote, but I don't believe it's what Jesus wrote that's all that important because I want you to see this. So they continued asking him in verse 7. He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you... Let him first cast a stone at her. Now, this isn't necessarily asking for someone perfect, because if that was the case, we would never have any judges. There are no perfect people, so we would have to put all of our judicial system aside. But he's speaking specifically about this woman's sin. And Jesus has taught that this is a sin that can be committed not only in the flesh, but in the mind, in the heart. And so, as he begins, notice what happens. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. I love that it is the words of Jesus and it is their conscience that convicts them. They know. You see, the person who was the witness to the sin was supposed to be the one to throw the first stone. And Jesus takes that stone out of that person's hand by saying, if you've not committed this sin, then you throw the stone. The real question is, or a question that we can ask ourselves is, where was the man involved in all of this? You see, these people, these Pharisees, they were not concerned about this woman's sin. They were not concerned about justice. They were actually very concerned about getting Jesus into a desperate place. They were trying to they were trying to establish some authority over Jesus. They were not really there was no love in their hearts, and there are those who will push these kinds of things and whether it's the Pharisees in Jesus day or the Pharisees of our day who are so legalistic about how you're supposed to respond to these things and they are pushing for not condemnation but celebration of sin. And they put this in our face, and it's it's either bow to our idol or we will put you in our fire. They're not doing that out of love. They're doing that out of a sense of authority and power. They may do it under the banner of love. Choose to live by God's love. Choose to live by God's love. Jesus says to her as he looks up, he looks around, and there's no one there but him and this woman. And he says, woman? Woman? Where are thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? Is there no witness here that is going to testify against you, that's going to condemn you? And she says, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You see, the love that we are to live by is sometimes a challenge for us because sin can make us angry the promotion of sin can make us angry. And if we're not careful, we will slide over into those who really don't care about the individual. All we care about is making our point. All we care about is our viewpoint. And it may be the right viewpoint. It may be a godly, biblical viewpoint but we cease to care about the person that's involved. Jesus looked beyond this woman's sin. Jesus looked beyond this situation that man had created, and he saw her soul that was in need of what every single soul on this planet is in need of, and that is salvation through Jesus Christ. So we have to sometimes pray, and some of us may struggle with that. We see these things that are pushed upon us, and we see... Uh, those who are harming others and harming children, and there's a lot of wicked things that are going on. And it is easy for us to to move away, but to live in God's love and live by God's love. And I emphasize that it is God's definition of love, not our world's definition of love. Our world's definition of love is, is that you must not only accept the person, but you must accept everything about the individual. And I dare say that anyone who's ever been in any kind of relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage or parents and children, we understand it's possible to love someone but not love everything about them. How many times could we as parents say, hey, I love my kid, I don't love everything they do. Some of us look at our spouse and say, man, I love my spouse, but I don't love everything they do. Good night, I look in the mirror, and I'm pretty partial to me, but I don't like everything that I do. We understand that truth. But to love someone, Jesus would say in John chapter 14, over and over and over, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Holiness and love are not at opposites to each other. They are not at odds with each other. They are the result of each other. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so it is living in that love. The loving solution to sin is not denial that it's sin, nor is it acceptance of that sin. Let me say that again, because I think that's a key truth for us to understand. The loving solution to sin is not denying that it's sin. When we look at those that we love, and maybe they're engaged in a sinful action, and I don't care what it is, I don't care if it's the ones that are making the news, or if it's the ones that we've become so common that we think it's acceptable. It's not... Denying that it's well, that it's not really wrong. It's not really a sin, and it's not the idea of accepting it. The loving solution to sin is what Jesus gives, and that's a call to repentance and forgiveness. Look, if I if, if someone goes to a, a physician and they have a, an illness or a disease. And the physician examines them and sees that that is the case. Is it loving for that physician to say, well, it's not really a disease, there's nothing wrong here? Or is it right for him and moral and ethical and loving for him to say, this is the problem you have, here's the cure? We see the things around us and we are tempted if we're not careful. To love as the world loves, but here's the example number one from Jesus, choose to live by God's love. This is sometimes difficult, and I'm going to just be very open this morning. I've been studying this for the last several weeks as God put this in my heart, preparing to preach this, praying over this text, praying over what to say and how to say it. The first thing when I woke up this morning after the normal things that read my Bible and did the things I normally do and finally got around to picking up my phone, And the first thing that I saw was right in my face was a promotion of sinfulness. And I would love to say that the love of God filled my heart. But if I have to be honest, it was not love that was the first emotion in my heart. It was an anger at, here we go again. And God spoke to my heart and God pointed to me and he said, you're getting ready to talk about the love of God. I want want you to understand, I want you to see that there's still some anger and bitterness in your heart about this. Now, you're going to see in just a moment, I'm not talking about acceptance of sin, folks, but I'm talking about having the love of Jesus toward those who are entrapped in it. God grant us to live by His love. On the other hand, there are those who struggle with giving in to man's lies. So the second principle I'll give to you this morning is this. Number one, choose to live by God's love. Number two, choose to not live by man's lies. You see, sin is a lie. Sin allows a person to say, this is true about me, or this is who I am, or this is, and it's not, and then you are asked to come alongside them and join in that lie, to participate in that lie. And again, this is not just the ones that are making the headlines in the news. These are the sins that have been in the church for decades. And we are called to join in together with that lie. Jesus, with his approach, counters really two lies. One lie is the lie that the Pharisees come with, and that is that their, their message is the lie of guilt without the hope of grace. They have this woman here. They want to condemn her. Can you imagine the wickedness that must be in their heart? I stop sometimes and think about the, the act of stoning. Not that I'm thinking about stoning anybody, although that does come to mind occasionally. Anytime I'm riding, driving to Raleigh, I would like to have a few stones that I could chuck out my window. I'm not really going to throw rocks at anybody. Some of y'all are, oh, I can't believe he said that. In my flesh, I feel the urge every once in a while. And some of you do too. But you think about the act of stoning, it's one thing to hear about a criminal that's been executed somewhere way off and we don't see it, we don't hear it. But you imagine having to pick up a stone and actually participate in, be active in the death of another individual. And you are there close enough to hit them with a stone and you see the results, that it takes more than one. You have to make very sure that that's the right thing to do. And these men come together with this woman, they bring her to Jesus, and some of them probably are ready to stone her. They would do that. Now, some of them might not do it on their own, but what happens when you get with a group of people? Boy, you'll end up doing things you... So I'll do it if everybody else is jumping. I'll just jump in and I'll throw a stone. But this is something that some of them, they would do. And their lie is, there is guilt here, but there's no possibility of grace. That's a, that is a lie that we must counter. We must live against, we must deny the lie. We cannot live according to the lie that someone is beyond the grace of God. And there are those in this world, I have heard it preached in my lifetime, that there are certain sinful behaviors that people cannot be saved from. And that is a lie out of the pit of hell. God's grace reaches to the uttermost. There is no soul, no sinner that he can't save. The lie that there's guilt without grace. It is a slander to accuse someone unjustly or to accuse them of unjust motives or to refuse to extend the grace of God. But there's another lie that Jesus counters here, and that is the lie of rightness, that we can have rightness without repentance. Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. That's the grace that counters the first lie. But then he says, go and do what? Sin no more. There's a vile organization in our world today that engages in some of these types of behaviors, and their slogan is, go and sin some more. Jesus, that's not what Jesus says. It's not what God says. God says, and Jesus says to us, go and sin no more. The idea that we can somehow be right and still sinful. We cannot walk in fellowship with him. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, Jesus said, 1 John chapter 1. We have fellowship with him when we walk in the light. But when we walk in sin, God can't accept that. God still loves us, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. Aren't you glad for the grace of God that's at work in your life that is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ? God came to where we were. Jesus came to where we were, and he saved our soul, and he saved us, and he loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. And so he is at work. He cannot. So we cannot live according, we cannot give into the lie that says it's okay to be sinful. God would never condemn. God loves me. Yes, God does love us, but let's refuse to participate in the lie without a call to repentance. It is a a lie to affirm sin without a call to repentance. So many verses of Scripture in the New Testament that speak about living a holy life. From the Great Commission where he says, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Live a holy life. Observe all that I have commanded unto you. All the way to the the feast of the marriage when the church stands before Christ and we stand there in the righteousness, the white robes of His righteousness and all in between God calls us to a life of holiness that we'll see in a moment. We must refuse to participate in a lie. I cannot call good what God calls evil. I can do that with the love of God in my heart. I can do that with the love of Christ, but I cannot participate in that lie. This passage tells us that there is nothing unloving or unchristlike about speaking the truth about sin. Do you see what Jesus says? Go and sin. No more. He knows that the act that this woman was caught in was a sin, and he never changes that. And God has not changed from the very beginning what is a sin and what is not a sin. And somebody can say amen right there if they like, but if they don't, I'll say amen, and God says amen because it's his word. Go and sin no more. We will be accused of being unloving and unChristlike. But I would say to you this morning, it is unloving not to speak the truth. It is unloving not to stand for the truth of Christ and the truth of God. This brings us to a third thing that Jesus calls us to or that Jesus models. Choose to live in God's light. Choose to live by God's love. Choose not to live in man's lies, but choose to live in God's light. In this last verse, Jesus' familiar statement Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Jesus first gives a call to forgiveness. There is no sin that we have committed except for the unpardonable sin. And if you're concerned that you've committed the unpardonable sin this morning, be assured that you haven't. If you were, had committed it, you'd have no concern about it. But any other sin can be forgiven. There are some people who think, Pastor, you don't, know how, you don't know how wicked I've been. I remember hearing a man one night in a service, he said, you don't know how sinful I have been. You don't know what I have done. But I want to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter how far, God's grace saves to the uttermost. That's the outermost limits that any soul can come to God. He gives forgiveness, whether it's a woman that's called in adultery, whether it's a, a, a church member sitting in their lies, whether it's pornography whether it's drugs whether it's immorality whether it's pride whether it's self-righteousness all sinners can come to god boy i'm so glad that god extends forgiveness i'm glad for the day that god forgave me you see we're all we're all wicked sinners we don't like to acknowledge that think back to what god saved you from think back to what he forgave you from Now, there are some who can probably think back and, hey, God saved me from a life of sin. And I'm thankful for that. But I'm also thankful for what God saves us from in the sense that he keeps it from ever happening. You see, I was saved as a young child. I'd been in church literally all of my life. I was a little short of born in church. Not quite that bad, but I was there a lot. And I was saved young. I had not committed a lot of Wild, atrocious sins. I had probably smoked a few crayons, um, sniffed some sweet and low or something like that. I'm not sure, just nothing real. Disobeyed my parents. Probably cut up in church. That, that counts as a, a sin. Boy, if that's the case, some of y'all need to be on the altar. And I'm talking to the adults, not the children or the youth. But I look back and I think, what if God had not saved me? Maybe I would have been one of those examples of a church kid or a pastor's kid that, boy, they really went off the rails. I believe God saved me from a far worse life. I believe God saved me from the life of a self-righteous religious hypocrite. You see, what could have happened is I could have grown up in church and I would know all the things to say and all the things to do. And I could be maybe like somebody that's sitting here this morning, and you've been in church your whole life, but you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You've never been genuinely converted. And you know how to talk the talk, and you know how to walk the walk, and you know what to do and how to do it. And you're sitting there, and my heart could have been filled with self-righteousness. And I will say that I believe that at times it's harder for a self-righteous religious hypocrite to get saved than it is for the worst drug-dealing drunkard whoremongering, adultering, whatever sin you want to throw in that lives in this world. Because they understand that they are a sinner. You see, a person must first be lost before they can be saved. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save those that are lost. And you've got to get lost before you can get saved. And so I say, praise God for God saving me from a lifelong sin of self-righteousness and hypocrisy and pride and arrogance. God saves us from those things, and he forgives us. He says, neither do I condemn thee. And then he gives a call of freedom. Go. You have been set free. Not to go out and do what you want to do. Not to live a life of sinfulness. Not to live, people say, oh, Christian liberty means I can go out and I can do whatever I want to do. No, it means that I am freed from having to do what I want to do. Sin is something that I can't control and I have to struggle with in this flesh, but God has freed me by His Spirit so that I don't have to do those things. I don't have to give in to sin. I don't have to give in to temptation. And then He gives a call to forsake. Go and sin no more. God calls us to repentance and He calls us to forsake those sins. You see, this is another call to holiness. God help us to be as fervent about living a life of holiness as we are other people laying down their sins. I'm going to say that one more time. God help us to be as fervent about living a life of holiness ourselves as we are about other people getting rid of their sins. He calls us to a life of holiness. And what does he do as he says, go and sin no more? He calls us to leave behind those kinds of sins. I mentioned that there are those who will try to say that people in certain lifestyles cannot get saved. Some people are too far gone, Pastor. I understand that there are levels of sin in the Bible. We often say all sin is equal. And in a judicial sense, that's true. We're all sinners before God, no matter what sin we have committed. But the Bible does say that there are some sins that the consequences are greater. There are some sins that it takes a greater depravity to reach that sin. And there are some sins that the results and where that leads us are worse. But I want you to look with me quickly this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to be reminded, as God calls us to remember what He has saved us from. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the church about the problem of sexual immorality within the church and how they are to deal with it. We seek to do that in a biblical way. Paul speaks in verse... Let's start in verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? I know people that love that phrase. Boy, these wicked sinners, they're not going to heaven. They've missed out on living in the love of God. Loving those with whom we disagree. Loving those who are sinners. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. Don't be deceived. Don't listen. Don't live by a lie. Live in love, don't get so excited over the first part, but don't live by the lie, be not deceived. Neither fornicators, sexual immorality, or idolaters, those that have participated in worship, we don't have little idols anymore, but we certainly have our idols in our heart. Nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Two different phrases that speak of homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying that a person who is living this lifestyle, someone who is living with unrepentant sin and lives a continual lifestyle of it is a person who has never trusted in Christ, no matter how much they profess to. But look at this next phrase. Here's what I want you to see. And such were some of you. He says, don't get on your high horse. Don't get too excited. Some of you were saved from these very sins. Some of you in the church at Corinth, you used to be a drunkard, but God saved you from that. You used to be an adulterer, but God saved you from that. You used to be a homosexual, but God saved you from that. You used to be a liar and an extortioner, but God saved you from that. We need to be reminded continually, lest we grow, lest we look over here and we condemn unfairly, or lest we look over here and we love unthinkingly, we must remind ourselves of what God has saved us from. Such were some of you. It's a call to holy living. God, help us to be concerned about living a holy life ourselves. So where are you this morning in this? We live in a culture. Some of you are going to walk out of here this morning. You're going to pick up your phone, you're going to turn on the television, you're going to talk to someone, and you're going to be confronted with this. And maybe this morning, you're as a Christian, your challenge is you're drawn over toward this idea of condemnation, great a guilt without a sense of grace. And your challenge will be, how do I continue to love those in my family, those at my workplace, those that are my friends and my neighbors, how do I continue to love them when they are living a life of sin, whether it's adultery or bitterness or sexual deviancy or whether it's pride or self-righteousness or ugliness, whatever the sin might be, how do I love them with the love of God? You will not do it on your own. It will only take the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to be able to love them with the love of God. On the other hand, there might be somebody here this morning that's struggling with the idea of you are feeling the pressure. Maybe it's a student at school, maybe it's a teacher, or maybe it's a person who works alongside, or maybe your, your workplace pressures this, or maybe it's your family, and they're pressuring you to, be, to embrace and celebrate and accept a lie. That something that is a sin is not, and it is okay, and I am to embrace that. And you're struggling with that. You're feeling that pressure to do that. Jesus navigates all of that, and he says, love with God's love. Don't live by man's lies, and then choose to walk in his light, to live a holy life before him. I will say that for every person that's here this morning, every believer, God's calling you to a life of holiness There may be somebody here this morning that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, and you may be sitting there thinking one of these two things. You may think you're so far gone that God can't love you or won't love you. I want you to know that He loved you so much He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that you could be restored to Him, forgiven, and you could go and be freed from what you've done and what's happened. If He can save someone like Paul the Apostle, Paul the persecutor becomes Paul the pastor and preacher. If he can save someone like Simon Peter, if he can save someone like David, he can save those that he saved in Scripture, he can save you. There may be someone who's sitting here this morning who would probably be where I would have been except by the grace of God, and you're sitting there thinking, I'm much better than all these other people. All this wickedness that's in the world, I'm better than that, I don't need that. I want you to know this morning, nothing you can do can save yourself only by grace, only by Jesus looking at you and saying, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This morning, you can trust Christ and receive him. It's as simple as acknowledging that you're a sinner, believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose again on the third day, and confessing him as your Savior and Lord. Christian, are you living a holy life? What is God speaking to your heart about this morning when He calls you, when He calls you to go and sin no more and to live